We'll look together at this section we started talking about last week. We looked at 10 through 13. And this week we're going to go back through those same verses and just continue on through the rest of this chapter. So we're going to finish this book today, at least for now. We'll come back to it over the years, I hope. We're going to finish it this morning. Um, you might see in your bulletin that in the weeks to come, we're going to dive into the book of Jonah. No pun intended. Um, I know, bad preacher joke. Plus y'all are asleep. Did y'all, was that just too much excitement with the baptism? Is that what it is? So we're going to spend a couple weeks getting ready to look at Jonah chapter 1 um, in preparation for uh, diving into that book together. So the next couple weeks, I'm not exactly sure what we're going to do. I've been thinking and praying about it. So if you think of it, you can pray for me and um, that the Lord will make it known what I need to do to get us ready for Jonah. So here we are, Philippians chapter 4, 10 through 23. I would, remember, I would remind you that what I'm about to read to you was, was written and breathed out by God. Whatever stories you love, great adventure stories, stories about great battles, love stories, the Word of God is the greatest story that has ever been written. The greatest battle that could ever be told is here in the Bible. The greatest adventure you could ever have, not only in your mind, but also in your life, is found here. The greatest love story ever is here in the pages of this book. So hear these words. This is a portion of God's Word to you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the Gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent me, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray together. Lord, here we are at the last chapter of Philippians and there is much here for us to discern and understand. 
thank you that your word is truth and it is telling us about the greatest love story ever told, the greatest adventure we could ever go on, the greatest battle where the victory is certain and has been won. Thank you, Lord, that the truth of all of that can penetrate not only our minds, but can go deep down. Thank you that your word challenges our motives, challenges our thoughts, the, even the intentions and motivations of our hearts. So Lord, help us to not only hear your word, but receive what you have for us today. Challenge us and change us. Make us more like your son, we pray. In your name, Jesus, for your glory. Amen. As we look at this text together, remember that my main operating assumption is this. We all struggle with discontentment. We all struggle with discontentment. I haven't been in the ministry terribly long, but again, no one has ever slammed down my door, come into my office, and no one was ever grieving their overabundance of contentment. I mentioned that to you last week. Nobody came this week. Nobody came in and started grieving about how content they were. Didn't happen. Starting point is that we all struggle with discontent. Remember, that's kind of the, the center and the crux of these verses. The Apostle Paul is talking to us about contentment. God is teaching us about contentment. It's something that we have to learn, as the Apostle Paul says. There's even an element of it that's kind of a secret. And the Apostle Paul, what we looked at last week was this. If you look at verse 12, there are two life situations that have a very clear tendency that almost always reveal to us and expose how discontent we are. They're mentioned for you over and over in verse 12. Have abundance and have nothing. You see, having abundance relates to this. If you get all of the dreams that you have, if all of your dreams come true, if all of your dreams come true and more, what will end up happening is getting all of your dreams, getting more than what you could have dreamed, will actually only reveal how discontent we are. Because we realize once we have our dreams, once our dreams come true, once more than our dreams come true, we realize, oh, I really haven't changed. I still have the same problems. I still have the same struggles. I still have the same deep-seated issues. Even getting our wildest dreams doesn't satisfy us. It can't. On the other side, our dreams can be dashed. There can be some catastrophic thing that happens, some catastrophic event in our lives, and that as well will reveal how discontent we are. We will admit and have to reckon with the fact that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. I'm not the way I'm supposed to be. All of that is exposed through these two life situations. And the struggle is most of us live somewhere in the middle where we don't get all of our dreams and more, and all of our dreams aren't dashed. And because we're in the middle, 
we have a tendency to just grovel in how discontent we are and maybe even live with the delusion that we're not as discontent as we really are. You see, when discontent begins to expose itself, what it shows us is how we all have deep longings. We all have very, very deep longings. And our sin illustrates all these deep longings. You see, whether it's you struggle with pornography and lust, or you struggle with approval from everybody, and you want and you crave approval for everyone from everyone, or when you want to just do exceptionally well on your job reviews every year, what's underneath all of that? What's underneath all of that? What's underneath the desire for pleasure? What's underneath the desire for love and approval? What's underneath the fact that you want to know that your life matters? What's underneath all of that? Is that God is the only one that can ultimately satisfy. You might try to find pleasure in every inappropriate way possible, but bringing yourself physical pleasure will never, ever give you the soul pleasure. The pleasure that your soul desires. Wanting everyone's approval will never ultimately give you the approval that you want. All the love from everyone that's around you or that you could come in contact with cannot give you the approval that you want. Only God in the Gospel can give you the approval that you need. And wanting to know that your life matter that your life matters and that it is significant, that you're living a life of significance, you will never ever find that by scoring as high as you possibly can or doing as well as you possibly can on all your job reviews. Because you see, the fact that you matter is not tied to anything that you've done or will do. The fact that your life means something is tied ultimately to the fact that you're made in the image of God. And you see, it's only the gospel, it's only the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection that will ever bring you, that will ever satisfy all those longings and bring you joy and love and approval and meaning. You see, that's what we looked at last week. And realizing and thinking about discontentment and thinking about all those things and reflecting on your life will only... and. It, all that adds momentum, you see. And it's why the Apostle Paul just explodes with verse 13. Because when you think about plenty, and when you think about being in one, and you realize how discontent you are, then verse 13 makes sense. Remember that verse? It's a verse that's become awfully popular over the past number of years. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. You see, that verse is not... I can do anything that I set my mind to. That verse is not, I can do anything that I set my faith to. That verse, verse 13, is not the spiritual alternative to human growth hormone. That verse is not the formula for how you live your life. Verse 13 is actually an expression of dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That verse is actually the Apostle Paul declaring how dependent he is on Christ. You see, what he's saying there is, I can do anything. I can do wealth. I can do poverty. 
I can preach to thousands of people or I can preach in a house where a young man falls asleep through my preaching and falls out the window and dies. Remember that last week? I can be face to face with the most powerful people in the world or I can be in prison. Jesus has changed everything for me so that I live my life standing on all that Jesus is for me in the Gospel. That His death was my death. His resurrection is my resurrection. And Jesus trumps every single circumstance. And when I have Him, circumstances find their place somewhere way down on the priority list. You see, that's why it should be no surprise that for the Apostle Paul, what surrounds contentment in all these verses, it should be no surprise to us that Paul immediately focuses us on time and money. You see, time and money are all wrapped around the core of contentment. Time and money are the resources that we, that we never think we have enough of. Right? We never think we have enough time and we never think we have enough resources. And if we're honest with ourselves, we probably would admit that both time and money have the attention of our hearts. So the Apostle Paul talks about time, and you might wonder, how in the world does he talk about this? Well, see, it's easy to miss the fact that the Apostle Paul is talking about time if we just jump into what the Philippians did for Paul. It's easy to miss. You see, God wants to remind us over and over again He wants to remind us, the Gospel tells us this, the Bible tells us this, that there's something prior to what we do. What's prior to what we do is who we are. And the Apostle Paul doesn't want us to miss this. Look at what he says in verse 10. He talks about their concern for me. You notice that? If you look in verse 14, he talks about how they shared in his trouble. If you look at verse 15, they were partners together. If you look at verse 16, they helped the Apostle Paul repeatedly. You see, they were giving of their time. They were committed to the Apostle Paul in relationship. Time is important. And when you give time to things, when you give yourself to things, when you give, when you give to others of your time, you're developing relationship. And it's something that we all need all the time. The Apostle Paul even mentions to them in verse 15 this idea of Macedonia. You see, it's the place where the church was located. But you, what you see, what it does is it forces the Philippians and it forces us to think back to the beginning. You see, when the Apostle Paul finally made it into the region of Macedonia and into this little community of Philippi, The Gospel was at work. God was at work long before Paul got there. And the Gospel was at work changing lives. The Gospel was at work changing and affecting an entire community. And you might remember, and you can read about this back, back in Acts chapter 16 if you'd like to. It's an amazing story of the start of this church. And you might remember, as God was changing people, some of the officials became aware of what was going on. And they actually came and they they grabbed the Apostle Paul and they drug him out into the middle of the street and they beat him. 
And then they develop somewhat of what we might call like a kangaroo court, whatever. And they end up putting him in jail. They put him in prison. And then they found out some things about the Apostle Paul and they realized they had been radically unjust in the way they treated the Apostle Paul. So do you know what they decided to do? The magistrate said to the police, all right, go let the Apostle Paul out. Now, I didn't mention this to you when we looked at Acts 16 because I want to tell it to you now. You see, the police come to let the Apostle Paul out of prison because they know that they have treated him unjustly. And do you know what the Apostle Paul says? No. He tells the police no. What? Think about Put yourself in this situation. You were living out your life with Jesus. You were telling others about Jesus. And then you were beaten and thrown into prison. And the police came and said, you can go. My response would be, open that up. I am sprinting out. Paul says no. As a matter of fact, he tells the police, he says, you go tell the city officials to come let me out themselves. It's fascinating. Do you know why the Apostle Paul would do that? Because he wanted to protect the church. You see, if the Apostle Paul just went out stealthily, if he went out quietly, the officials might go and, and, and they might want to attack the church some more and drag more people to prison. But if this was a public ordeal in which the magistrates themselves had to come and let the Apostle Paul out, oh, they weren't going to touch the church that got started. You see, what happens when the Apostle Paul does that is a bond is formed. It had already been formed with the church, but it is deepened through that experience. You see, it's what helps us understand that they had great concern for the Apostle Paul and that they were partners with the Apostle Paul and they gave to the work of what God was doing in the world. Because written into their story was not just that God was at work and spreading the Gospel and changing people's lives. It's that the Gospel created a community in which God's people loved one another they shared with one another. They had a concern for one another. They gave of their time to each other. Do you see? The church is a place that is not only born by the Gospel. It's a place that exists and grows by the Gospel. And the Apostle Paul is highlighting that for all of us. He's saying, look, we're partners together. You've shared with me. You've shared my burdens. You have a concern for me. And beloved, this is exactly the way we are supposed to live together. Sinners who love each other, who care for one another, who share their burdens, have a concern and partner together. And you see, when God calls all of us to partner together, He is not desiring that every single one of us become ordained to the Gospel ministry. God's plan is much bigger than that. Yes, He calls some people into the ministry. I'm one of them. But He calls us to live together. This means that if you understand your time properly, if I understand my time properly, we are fulfilling God's will by extending His kingdom by fulfilling our callings every day of the week. 
You see, the Apostle Paul, when this church was started, we have jailers who were involved in this church. We have a girl who was formerly a slave involved in this church. And we have someone who was incredibly wealthy. A woman that had her own business and traveled all over making fine clothes. She was all into fashion. You see, what this does is it frees us as a church to fulfill our callings during the week, no matter where God scatters us once we leave here. You see, what it means is, you've heard me say this before, God wants us to be ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. What it means is that God doesn't so much have a mission for His people as He has a people for His mission. It means that you love God every day in everything that you're doing because we are laboring together, giving of our time, sharing one another's burdens and concerns. Do you see? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. If we desire for people to come to our church and to hear the gospel, guess what? You're free to invite them whenever you want. We don't have any formal program for that. We want you to invite people. If our church needs to be more generous, then guess what needs to happen? I need to be more generous and you need to be more generous. If we want to worship better together, if we want to sing better, guess what we need to do? Not so much crank up the volume back there as we need to sing. You see, God is creating this community. He's establishing this community where we're giving of our time and serving Him in everything that we're doing. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's the way He's designed it. We see that leads us right into what did the Philippian church actually do? And if you look in your bulletin, you'll notice that it's not only time that we talked about just now, but there's also money that's there. And it's true. What did they do? They gave of their resources. They partnered with him. They gave of their money. They, verse 15, gave, they were giving. Verse 17 and 18, they gave him gifts. They gave money. But what God wants us to understand is he wants us to look at how he thinks about money. Look at verse 18. The Apostle Paul says, I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, acceptable, excuse me, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You see, what the Apostle Paul is actually telling us here is not just their time and not even so much their money as it is worship. God wants us to understand that giving to His kingdom and giving to His church is worship. When we give to the Lord, it's worship. It is a fragrant offering. It is a sacrifice to God. It smells sweet to God. You see, this takes us all the way back. Back almost to the beginning. See, way back, not long after the beginning, there was a flood. And there was a man that God loved and his family. And after the flood water subsided, this man and his family exited this gigantic floating raft, the ark. His name was Noah. And you know what Noah did when 
His life was preserved and the water subsided. Noah offered to God a sacrifice. And that sacrifice was an offering. And that offering was a sweet-smelling aroma to God. You see, giving to God is not so that we get His favor. Noah offering a sacrifice to God didn't save him. It was an expression of his praise. It was an expression of his thanks. It was an expression of his love for God in all that God had done. You see, when we give, we are saying, God, everything belongs to you. Everything. My mind, my heart, my resources, all that I am belongs to You. And we praise God and express our love through giving. You see, in the Bible, money is always a heart issue. It always is. Money is always a heart issue. Oftentimes we think that we need more or better information or maybe that we just need a plan of what to do with our resources and money. And beloved, that could be true. It never hurts to have a plan and it never hurts to have a budget. It never hurts to have information about money. But you see, there's something deeper. There's something deeper than our ignorance and deeper than not having the right plan. Whatever that is. Sin... Because of sin, our lives are focused on ourselves. What sin does is it makes self the most important thing in the world. And what that means is that when self is the most important thing in the world, we don't want to be under any authority, the church or any other. And we want to live as consumers. And all we want to do is consume. And money, you see, allows us to do a lot of things. Money allows us to indulge us. Money allows me to feel better about me. Money enables me to change how other people view me. Money makes me feel better about me. Money helps me depend upon me. Money keeps me from saying no to me. You see, this is how deep sin is within us. And what happens is the significance of Jesus' death and the significance of His res resurrection break into our lives. And God doesn't say that money is bad. He doesn't say that at all. As a matter of fact, He changes our heart so that we view money properly. So that we view our resources properly. And instead of living with self at the center, when the grace of God comes into our lives, it pushes self out of the center and puts Jesus there. And what the Gospel communicates to all of us is this. You get to be part of a kingdom that is far bigger than any kingdom you could ever build with your own resources. You get to be part of God's kingdom. The kingdom that cannot fail. 
You get to belong to Him. You don't have to live for yourself anymore. As a matter of fact, if the grace of God has come alive in your life, you don't want to live for yourself anymore in any area of life. And we feel that struggle, don't we? Because we never do it perfectly. We never live for God perfectly. But you see, grace tells us that we are incredibly poor. And that God through Jesus has given me greater riches than I could ever know. The grace of God is fully consuming. It affects everything about us so that everything that we're doing then becomes worship. Giving to God is not so much a duty as it is worship. When we're giving to God all that we are. You see, this is why the Apostle Paul begins this section this way. I rejoice in the Lord greatly. He's rejoicing over the time that they've given to Him, over the relationships that they've built, and over the fact that they have worshipped God by giving resources. The Apostle Paul begins by thanking God and rejoicing in God. If you look at verse 17, the Apostle Paul doesn't even care so much about the gift, does he? He doesn't care so much about the gift as he does the fruit. You see, the Apostle Paul knows that unless the Gospel comes into our lives and into our hearts, we will never want to give. And the only reason that the church has given so lavishly is because God has gotten a hold of their hearts. So when they give, it's actually an expression that God has changed them. The Apostle Paul rejoices over that. He cares about the fruit. And that's why he would tell them in verse 19, don't forget, y'all. Don't forget, church. Don't forget. God, my God, will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. See, it's there that we have everything. Everything. However, However we live, wherever we live, whatever we do, whatever skills we have, is all because of God. It's all because of His grace. Everything is connected to the Lord Jesus. And that's why I think Paul's last words to us are a reminder to us of God's grace. That's why I think he concludes by saying the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Because he wants us to remember that God's grace is indeed upon us. God's grace is evidenced by the way that the people have loved each other and loved Him and given. Given to the work of the kingdom. As a matter of fact, I just love the end of this. Because what the Apostle Paul is saying here in confirming and, and reminding us of grace is he is being incredibly sneaky. And I absolutely love it. Do you realize what he says before he ends with reminding us about the grace of God? He starts talking about how connected we are, doesn't he? Here he is in prison in Rome. And he's telling the church in Philippi, look, everybody here greets you. All the believers here greet you. You see, the church of God is connected 
It's accountable. It's connected everywhere. And what's so sneaky about this and what's so glorious about this is that the Apostle Paul mentions specifically those in Caesar's house. Isn't that magnificent? You see, the Apostle Paul's in prison, right? Paul is in prison and he's reminding us, don't forget, God is in charge. Don't forget, God's in charge. You see, Paul is in prison and the gospel has infiltrated the palace. They think, it's as if the Apostle Paul is saying, they think they've got me in chains. But beloved, you can't chain the grace of God. What they think as they can squelch the effect of the gospel and snuff out the gospel by having him in prison. And what Paul is saying is, actually, by putting me in prison, you have enabled the gospel to go to an incredibly hostile place. So, beloved, the end is a beginning. The end is a beginning. The message at the end of this book is exactly the same message that we started with in chapter 1 of Philippians. He ends in exactly the same place that he starts. Never forget, God is at work. Even when you try to chain the gospel and the message of his grace, you can't do it. God's grace will infiltrate everything in your life and change you radically so that you actually want to give of your time and you want to invest yourself in people and you want to give to His kingdom. Never forget that God is at work. Never forget that relationships are central. Never, ever forget that the gospel is life. Let's pray together.